The first reading this morning is from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The next reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 13. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And the last scripture reading is from 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This is the word of God. Today's sermon touches on sexuality and relationships. And while there are no explicit references, we want to acknowledge your desire to listen at a time you feel most appropriate. So feel free to hit pause and come back to listen at a suitable time. Like many young adults, the process of figuring out my college studies and eventual career was a bit of a muddled path. It was a little harder than just putting on a bunch of hats. After a freshman year in the science faculty, I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't know what that was, but I knew it. I didn't want three more years of lab work and graduate school. So I considered three very different options. One was music, one was business, and the third was engineering. So I asked myself in my strange decision-making process two questions. One was, what kind of job, what would job prospects be like after graduation? And two, which of, the, which of these three subjects or choices would I never come back to later on in life? So I decided on engineering. I know, it's not a particularly inspired method of discernment. 25 years later, some friends and I were sitting around uh, talking about our, our decisions and if knowing what we know now, whether we would have chosen something different in college. And I think most of us said, no, we would have done something different. Now, in contrast with much of the developing world where people simply work to survive, many of us in first world countries have the privilege of discerning our studies or careers where we seek to line up you know, professionally, to do something professionally with what we feel internally. Some would call this vocational discernment. 
And this process is often informed by expectations, living up to the expectations of what people tell you, whether it's your family or your friends and teachers or the expectations of the world. That's our outside-facing self, what we present to others. For me, my family told me to love God and serve God. From my high school science teacher pitching the IB academic program to us, he would constantly tell us, you're the best of the best of the best of the best. And for my engineering school, we had this motto with the acronym ERTW, saying, engineers rule the world. Very humble. All the while, there is this inside-facing self. You're trying to figure out who you are and what your gifts and what your skills are and threading those two things together, your outside self and aligning them with your inside self and having those line up with the outside circumstances which are beyond your control. Takes incredible attentiveness, but also incredible luck. So what are we to do with all this? The story of Scripture tells a different narrative. As we've been learning in the series, our identity and our sense of community come from outside of ourselves. Our true identity comes from the living God. And our model and source for community is found in the three persons of the Trinity, living out their purposes in perfection. So today we look at how we spend our lives, too, comes from God. We are called by God to God. And as uh, Kendrick just read for us in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promises to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. An encounter with the living God changes Abram's life purpose, reflected even in his name change from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father, exalted father of the multitudes. God's invitation to Abraham challenges him to abandon all normal sources of personal identity and security. His people, his family, his country, and even his name. To obey Abram must trust God completely. All human support is largely removed and he becomes Abraham and depends completely upon God. He could no longer depend on his family heritage. You see, tied to his family name uh, was more than a name to carry on, but all of the inheritance of the land that his family owned. Stepping away from his family's home would be to step away from this generations of work to clear and cultivate that land in an agrarian society. It's very different from our, us nowadays. Moving away from home is just making sure you have enough money to pay rent and food. Stepping away from his country also meant that he was stepping away from this ethnic identity amongst his people to be a perpetual foreigner in another land that he didn't know where he was going to. And although we know that Abraham left his journey with significant material means, he still had to navigate new lands and new languages. His antenna was constantly up to be aware of threats and wondering if each stranger he encountered was going to be a friend or foe. In our story of American exceptionalism, we are drawn to these promises of God. We love to hear words like that. To make a nation great. To be blessed. But in this call, God is asking Abraham to forego all normal sources of personal identity, of pride and security and privilege. Abraham is called by God to God first. And that understanding informs this 
term vocation. While the term is understood most broadly now as a suitability, our suitability for a particular occupation or career, the idea actually grew out of the Christian tradition. Often the term is used to uh, apply to people like myself who are called to vocational ministry, where my calling to serve God happens to align with my paid work. But I think this idea of vocational ministry is too limiting. The term is derived from the Latin term vocare, which means to call. As the call of Abraham reminds us, this idea of vocation is central to the Christian faith. And it's that God calls each individual to God first. All of us have a vocation, and all the parts of our lives are meant to be ordered according to that vocation. And yes, our vocation may involve paid work, but it is also much more than that. To be called by God to God is to live our lives in ways that speak of God's goodness. There's a sense of wholeness and of integrity and of self-forgetfulness. We're not so focused on us and what we're doing. We're instead focused on God and what God is calling us to. Vocation is not characterized by striving and anxiety, but a posture of just receiving and rest. Quaker author Parker Palmer writes in his book, Let Your Life Speak, saying this, Today I understand vocation quite differently, not as a goal to be achieved, but as a gift to be received. Discovering vocation does not mean scrambling towards some prize just beyond my reach, but accepting the, true, the treasure of true self I already possess. Vocation does not come from a voice out there calling me to be something I am not. It comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person I was born to be. The voice that calls from within is the voice of God, calling you first to God and to rest in God. God is the one who created you and knows who you were born to be. And it is out of that primary calling that we discover other places of calling in this world, in our careers, in our service to others, in our families, in our neighborhood, and in our nation. In our modern world, our instinct is to look first at our gifts and our talents and then formulate the sense of vocation out of that. But we often fail to heed the call of God first. The story of Abraham is the same story of Adam and Eve. It's the same story of Moses, the same story of David, the same story of Mary, Jesus' mother, the same story of Paul, and the story of Phoebe. That is to be meant to be the story for each one of us. And one significant difference that God has gifted us with is this community of fellow sojourners in the church to help us recognize and hear God's voice together through the work of God's Spirit. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So, we are called to God, uh, by God, to God. But we are also called by God, for God. You know, God as our creator has, en has endowed upon us not only the dignity of humanity and the call to bear God's image in the world, but the idea of vocation suggests that God has created each person with gifts and talents oriented towards specific purposes and a way of life. We are called by God for God's purposes. We are called by God for God. In Ephesians 4, that Kendrick read for us, the, Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. 
Implied here, again, is this idea that God is the one who's doing the calling, and all we are doing is simply receiving that calling and living out of that calling for God's purposes in the world. But that's not always an easy task. It's easy to say, hard to navigate. Many of our LGBTQ Christian sisters and brothers have a gift for the rest of the church. They've navigated what it means to live out their calling of God uniquely as they process how their identities, their sexuality, and calling intersect with faithfully following Jesus. It's something straight people often don't have to do to the same degree because many things are presumed to be normal. It's similar to what people of color have to do in a predominantly white culture. You know, minorities often have to jump through more hoops to sort out what a life worthy of the calling looks like when the dominant culture is the one that defines normal life. You know, I recently read Eve Tushnet's helpful book entitled Gay and Catholic, Accepting My Sexuality, Finding Community, and Living My Faith. That's the title of the book. And when I discovered that she lives in D.C. and volunteers at the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center just a block away from us, I reached out to her and invited her to speak in this sermon series. So she'll be here with us on February 14th. And in her book, she starts out with this idea that everyone has a vocation, and probably more than one in her mind. And she writes this, A vocation is a path or way of life in which God is calling us to pour out our love for him and for other particular human beings. Vocation is always a positive act of love, not a refraining from action. That last statement, I'll unpack what that means. She applies this, in her mind, our vocation is always for God and for others. And she applies this understanding of vocation to the concept of celibacy. And she says that celibacy, which is abstaining from marriage and from sexual relations, in and of itself is not a vocation. Celibacy is not a vocation, but it can be a discipline that frees one up for for your vocation. For Catholic priests, there are certainly some who feel called to celibacy, but most are simply called to the priesthood without a sense of being called to celibacy or that celibacy is what fits them. The celibate discipline of celibacy comes as a consequence of these other facts, such as being called to be a priest in the Catholic Church. And Eve applies the same understanding of vocation to singleness and asserts that singleness too is especially not a vocation, since singleness is defined by a lack of connection to others. For many, singleness is not a choice. So we shouldn't helpfully presume that a person who is single because of circumstances is necessarily called to singleness as a vocation. That adds a necessary pressure for those who are single. What Eve does here for us is helpfully frame our ethical, our relational, and our social situations within the context of vocation. Understanding vocation first as being called to God for God. But here's the thing. Discerning our calling and vocation isn't something that we figure out alone. In Ephesians 4, Paul continues to describe in verse 12 how each of our callings is meant to be a gift to build up the body of Christ. We work out our gifts in the context of community. He continues in verse 15 to describe how our mutu- through our mutual discernment, we speak the truth in love 
and will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. It's in the context of community, particularly in the body of Christ, that each of us hear the calling to God and for God more clearly. It's in communion with the saints found in scripture. It's in communion with sisters and brothers in Christ found in the body in the church. And one of the challenges, I'm going to apply this to to dating nowadays, and particularly with the common practice of online dating. You know, are in an, that, that relationship is often formed in a limited context of just the two people alone. The couple initiates, they get to know one another, and they grow in a relationship in almost a lab environment because you're always on your best behavior with one another. The relationship develops without seeing how your partner behaves in front of people who know them well. And it's in, it's in the presence of friends and family who know how to push our buttons that we get to see your partner when they don't have their best front up. And when a couple introduces their partner to their fa- friends and family, it's often done with this posture of, of, of what, what do you think of my decision, of my choice, rather than asking with a posture of, I invite your wisdom and discernment because you know me, strengths and weaknesses, and you walk humbly with God. I value your input in in both the affirmations and the challenges that you give to me. Will you help me discern God's call for me in this relationship? Now, I wonder how the quality of our relationships would improve if we gave our good friends permission to do this. You know, of course, I'm not saying that online dating or dating is something that you should avoid. I mean, obviously, if you're already in a relationship, you should avoid that. The point is is to illustrate that the, the... Looking at things from a posture of vocation shifts discernment of a relationship from questions like, am I happy? Am I, is this compatible for me? Is this good for me? To a question of, how is God calling me to love God and to serve others through this particular relationship? That changes how we ask ourselves our questions. The Apostle Peter describes this idea of stewarding your gift in 1 Peter 4.10. There, he says, he, wait, that's the wrong passage here. Oh, it's, I think it's up on the screen. Okay, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There's different forms of God's grace. There's different gifts, but all are to be used in the service of others. Nate Collins is another gay Christian who reflects on the Bible's references to a particular behavior or pattern of living as a gift. In his mind, the gift highlights the calling or the vocation. The gifts or the disciplines are not the vocation themselves. They are a reflection of the vocation that serves others. The discipline of, like we mentioned earlier, the discipline of celibacy is a reflection of the vocation of Catholic priesthood. The discipline of sexual faithfulness is a reflection of the vocation of marriage. Even though one spouse might find themselves attracted, often intensely attracted to people other than their spouse. We don't often think of our marital status, whether it's married or unmarried, to be used as a gift in the, serv- in, in the service of others. 
even though Paul describes it as such in 1 Corinthians 7. We talked about this in our sermon series in the fall, so you can go back to listen to that one on 1 Corinthians 7 in October at wcfchurch.org slash sermons. Collins insightfully points out that we often don't consider our marital status as a gift to be stewarded because we tend to view marriage and singleness primarily through the lens of sexuality. You know, most church contexts, being married means you can have sex. Being single means you can't have sex. That's generally how we have viewed marriage and being single. When the primary lens for viewing your marital status is your ability to have sex, then it leads to several tensions. One, single people often wonder why sex is only limited to a marriage relationship if God created sex to be good and a holy thing. And on the other hand, this kind of preoccupation about sexuality can lead unmarried people to have more anxiety and guilt when they try to navigate the frustrations of being a single person who doesn't have the gift of celibacy and yet experiences unfulfilled sexual attraction. Nadia Boltzweber, in her book Shameless, tries to resolve this tension. She rightly critiques how there has often been an unhealthy fixation of sex outside of marriage in the Christian church. And that leads often, has led often to tremendous shame and exclusion. She concludes that sexual activity outside of marriage may be permissible and even honoring to God because it recognizes the gift of our bodies that God made and the pleasure and pleasure as a good creation of God. As long as that sexual activity is loving, consensual, and committed. However, I believe she arrives wrongly at this conclusion because she overweights the sexual ethic on the basis of impact rather on the basis of calling and vocation. But what if there is another lens to view our marital state that isn't as preoccupied with the kinds of sexual activity that are permitted by God? What if there is another lens to help shift the focus of the conversation on sexual ethic to one that is based on stewarding our vocations? We are called by God to God. We are called by God for God. And when we heed this call, it begins to frame how we steward our lives professionally, emotionally, relationally, and sexually. When we view our lives through this lens of vocation, it is done out of a place of fullness in God rather than out of a place of absence of relationship or experience. And you may wonder how, just how we are able to hear God's call in this way. First, God has called us, uh, given us a gift in the church as the body of Christ. Imperfect as we might be, God's spirit works through God's people to reveal God's will to one another and through one another. We hear God's call through hearing God's word preached and through gathering together in community to discern how God is working in our lives, as Neil encouraged us at the beginning of the service. Secondly, God has given us the gift of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. If we wonder how we can hear and follow God's call to live out over our vocation, I simply invite you to start by following Jesus, what he said, what he teaches, because Jesus is the only human to have lived out God's vocation perfectly. Jesus heard God's call to God and lived a life completely for God and God's purposes. Jesus poured out his life and gave it up in the service of all 
In fact, Jesus gave up his life on the cross as a ransom for the sins of you and I. Wherever you are at in your journey with God, I invite you to join us in this, uh, in this journey of, of finding wellness and assurance and peace in being faithful stewards of God's grace in the world. May it be so, and may you find such joy in doing so to the glory of God. Amen.